Hi, my name is Olivia. My name is Isaac. And my name is Alizay. And this is the Colorado Stories Podcast. The theme we are focusing on for this episode is conquest, which is the idea that a dominant group conquered another in pursuit of their own interests. In Colorado history, one of the shows of conquest was the Ludlow Massacre. This started with the fight for an eight-hour day, fair pay, to be able to buy whatever they wanted, to elect their own weight man, and to have recognition in their union. The company town that owned the mine wanted to keep control of everything in that area. They wanted to have keep cheap wages and hardworking people. The workers were living in not so great homes and they only got paid for all the coal extracted and they didn't get paid for digging in the mine. They were unhappy and so they went on strike. The strike led to a fight and then Ludlow was burnt. Out of all the people that were killed, the leader of it all, Louis Tipas, was killed and women and their children were nuddled in with their children. This is an example of conquest because it is the rich company town trying to silence the mine workers. Today we have three stories about conquest. Our first story is about the Sand Creek Massacre. On November 29, 1864, the Sand Creek Massacre happened. The location of the massacre was in Kiowa Country, Colorado. Massacre was rooted in the long conflict for the control of the Great Plans of Eastern Colorado. The tensions were rising between the natives and the settlers because settlers wanted the land that the Indians were staying at, but the Indians wanted still wanted their land. There are many important people in the Sand Creek Massacre, but the main three was John M. Sherrington, mastermind of the attacked leader of of the army they had back then. The, another man was Black Kittle, the chief of the Cheyenne Indians. And casualties of soldiers and the Indians were soldiers were 52 wounded and 24 killed for the soldiers and 7263 Indians were killed the reason why there was a lot more than that is because they had more men and also the men that protected the Indians were on a hunt at the time so they couldn't protect themselves that much. Over two-thirds of the people who were slaughtered or before the massacre, the tribes try to reason and be friendly with the government and try to keep their land, so they put up an American flag to show a friendliness. And after the massacre started, they try to put up a white flag to surrender. And the chiefs of the Indians try to establish a truce between the government and the Indians, but that did not work. Not that they were gonna. When they established the truce, they thought they, that that worked because they thought the Indian, the white people were going to move more west, but they were wrong. 
trying to maintain the peace, but it did not work, and most of their lives were gone because of the massacre that happened. Black Kettle, leader of the Cheyenne Indians, went to Denver to for a friendly visit, and and the whites were gave him well well received. He thought the whites were going to move more towards west, but since he was wrong, the lives of his tribe was gone. There was innocent people that died that day. This day was an important day because it shows us how our country, the United States, was made. It shows that how white settlers made it across from the east coast to the west coast and killed people on the way. You know, it's, the United States is based on blood and horrible things that the white settlers did, but now we are one of the countries that are most respected, the most, we are free, and that's it. The second story is about the Chicano movement. One night, 1972, down at the park, people were violating the park curfew. Police lined up on one side, pushing people out of the park and people were running. No, this was not a political rally, just people who lived in the area using the park. These types of events were very common in the 70s. Sometimes there were shootings and fire bombings in the neighborhood. This is one example of the kinds of protests that defined did the Chicano movement, which was civil rights for Mexican Americans. Here in this podcast, you will hear about some facts about the Chicano movement and an event involving this movement, boycotts, strikes, and riots, all a part of the movement. Major leaders such as Jorge Gonzalez and Crusade for Justice stood up for Chicano rights and helped organize protests. The Chicanos referred to the entire Southwest as Atlan, which is the Chicano homeland. In Chicano culture, Atlan is the land of the gods, made for the Aztec people and their descendants. For Chicanos, Atlan was an important idea at the time. They were being discriminated against dominant white culture. Chicanos had the idea of conquest, that there was a history of racism in the United States. They used the term Chicano to fight all the issues that were prevalent during the 60s and 70s. The Chicano movement opened many doors for many Chicano politicians to advocate for their people. One important part of the Chicano movement was the historic battle over Columbus Park, West 38th Avenue between Navajo and Osage streets was the center of Chicanos movement. The Mexican-Americans would say it is called La Raza Park, but the sign said Columbus Park. It was named Columbus as the recognition of Italian-American community that dominated the neighborhood, which was called Little Italy, and is now a part of the Highlands. Mexican-Americans 
also lived in the neighborhood for a very long time. By the 1960s, Mexicans overtaken the Italians. As numbers increased, political power and sense of themselves also changed. Meanwhile, at the park, there was a pool. The lifeguards were mostly white, and the families using it were mostly Chicano. By 1971, community activists took over the park. In the book, The Crusade for Justice, Vigil describes young people tearing down a fence and jumping into the pool where they taunted police that tried to arrest them for two seasons. Chicano teenagers staged splash-ins and taunted lifeguards. When the white lifeguards would quit, the Chicanos moved into their jobs. 1971, the park became under the control of the Chicano movement. Activists staged similar take- takeovers in other places too. This is when people started calling the park La Raza Park. La Raza means the people. Before the community took over the park, the pool was filthy. There was broken glass and the park was run down. It was not taken care of at all. After they took it over, they cleaned it, painted it, and they started having community forums. The park was seen as a place for young, politically aware Chicanos. People would come from around the city and region to be at the park. This event did not only have an impact in the park and neighborhood, but it also had an impact in the political world. Hispanic vote divided between two candidates. Italian-American Eugene Dimana was elected to what was the District 9 council seat in 1971. Dimana told police that he did not want Mexicans in the park, and if they have to break heads to do it, then they have to break heads. Activists circulated petitions for recall, which took many years. Then, years later, Sal Caprio then became one of Denver's first Hispanic elected officials, and he finally replaced Dimana in 1975. And now, this is the last story about Cheeseman Park. Cheeseman Park is the alleged haunted park in Denver, Colorado. Many people who have worked here have felt or saw things and never returned back to work. That park is said to bring an uneasy feeling to visitors. But, interestingly enough, before it was a park, it was a cemetery. In 1858, General Williams Larimer claimed the St. Charles Town Company, and he changed the name to Denver. Larimer had set aside 320 acres of land for a cemetery named Mount Prospect, which is now modern-day Cheeseman Park, Denver Botanic Gardens, and Congress Park. In 1858, the 320 acres of land legally belonged to the Arapaho Indians. This ended up being a show of conquest. In 1860, the Arapaho Indians had a treaty with the government and it was deeded and the land was deeded to the United States. As it turns out, Larimer ended up leaving Denver and the cemetery was given to a cabinet maker named John Wally, who interestingly enough was an inspiring undertaker. 
he ended up not really doing any upkeep on the cemetery, and the place got a little unkempt. Headstones were toppled, graves were vandalized, and in some cases, ruined. Even some cows ended up grazing on the land. The U.S. government has determined the had determined the cemetery was federal land in 1872. They determined it was, the, it was federal land because of the 1860 treaty with the Arapaho Indians. The government had offered the land to Denver and the city bought it for $200. The name was then changed to Denver City Cemetery. During that time, parts of the cemetery were dedicated to groups, ethnicities, and organizations. 20 acres were bought by the Hebrew Burial Society, and that area was the only part of the cemetery that was ended up being maintained. There is also a quote-unquote hospital for people suffering from smallpox and other super contagious diseases. It was given the name Pet House because most patients were left there to die. Not many people made it out of there because they were stuck in there with other diseased. Behind the hospital, there was a space named Potter's Field, and it had many mass graves in it. In the late 1880s, the park fell into even worse shape than it had been, than it had been before. So, Congress and real estate developers agreed that they wanted a park in space of the unused, ugly, disheveled cemetery. January 25th, 1890. That was the day that Congress announced the city needed to vacate Mount Prospect of all the remains and caskets. So as a result, the cemetery gave the families 90 days to remove their loved ones. 90 days later, many bodies were still left in the graves mainly because of the people that, that were buried in the cemetery were criminals, poor, and diseased. It seems like none, no one really cared about them, and no one really cared what happened to them, which is the second time that someone had some sort of conquest happen to them. The amount of graves in the Roman Catholic section motivated them to make that area its own cemetery, so they kept it and named it Mount Calvary Cemetery. To remove the rest of the bodies, they hired an untaker, undertaker named E.P. McGovern to remove the remains at $1.90 per casket. The removing of the remains started on March 14, 1893. McGovern had an audience of reporters to watch him. As he was moving, he found out a way to make more money. He dismembered bodies and put body parts in child-sized caskets. That would also pay him $1.90 per casket. He was trying to pull one over on the city. Bones ended up being scattered everywhere, and people came and collected, quote-unquote, souvenirs. McGovern was put under investigation by a health inspector. He was fired not being able to finish the job. So a temporary wooden fence was built around the perimeter to keep curious people out. There were still open graves, and some graves were not cleared out yet. The park was finally finished in 1907 but the rest of the bodies were not moved. Two years later, a marble pavilion was donated to the park by, Glide, by Gladys Cheeseman Evans and her mom. The park was named Cheeseman Park after them, Hebrew and Catholic remains being the places where Denver Botanic Gardens and Congress Park now reside. They were moved to other cemeteries, but as it turns out, the mass majority of Cheeseman Park was a cemetery. 2,000 bodies are still left in the park today. Today, the park is believed to be a haunted area. If you visit the park, it has been said that spirits will make their presence known to you. Moans can be heard from unopened graves. People who visit the park say they can feel unexplainable sadness and dread in the park. There have been stories of children seen playing in Cheeseman at night, but when they look again, they are nowhere to be found.
a woman can also be heard singing. And once they find the singing woman, she disappears. It is said that on moonlit nights, you can see the outlines of the unopened graves. People have also reported sad and confused spirits knocking at their door. Many people also find it difficult to get up after lying down on the grass. It has been described as a feeling as a feeling as if someone was holding them down. That was the story of the old Mount Prospect Cemetery and the now currently haunted Jason Park. This has been Conquest, a Colorado Stories podcast.